will allow me to say good evening to you. Uh, it is a, always a joy of mine to have the privilege to break open the Word of God with you all, whether that be from the pew or uh, behind uh, the sacred desk as well. Uh, tonight, as we do so, uh, together we find ourselves now uh, in our number study in Numbers chapter 24. Uh, so if you haven't already, be turning to Numbers chapter 24. We're going to be looking at just the first uh, nine verses uh, this evening. So Numbers chapter 24, um, as we looked at over the last uh, several weeks, uh, actually the last several chapters, we've uh, been in this uh, part of the narrative uh, where we've been seeing uh, this man named Balaam and uh, Balaam's oracles. Uh, so in chapter uh, 23, uh, we see Balaam's first uh, oracle in uh, chapter 23. Also, again, later, uh, we see his second oracle, and tonight, we don't find his last oracle, but we are going to be looking uh, at part of his third oracle. So Numbers chapter 24, we'll begin our scripture reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 9. And the word of God reads, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eyes is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than, than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces, and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Will you go to the Lord and pray with me? Well, Heavenly Father, this is indeed your inerrant and infallible word. And God, in it, you have given us all that we need for life and for godliness. So, Father, I pray that because of that very truth here tonight, we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would instruct, teach, and equip us through your Word so that we might be able to pray with the psalmist that the meditations of our hearts, that the words of our mouths would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, who is our rock and our redeemer, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
So Numbers chapter 24, uh, again, as I said before we read the passage together, we are coming uh, really close to the end of a section uh, in this narrative uh, in Numbers, uh, where again, since chapter 22, we are really looking at the, uh, the Balaam story. Uh, and tonight we come to a portion uh, in this uh, part of the narrative uh, where things begin to, to kind of take a turn. Um, a distinct, uh, just real quick, a distinct memory of mine uh, that I will always have uh, of my father is any time I ever uh, had to call him, it didn't matter what time of day or, or what he was doing or what I was doing, he would always answer nine times out of ten. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I have those who I would call, and I can include my mom in this, and hopefully she doesn't kill me for saying this, uh, but I have those who I can call that nine times out of ten they probably won't answer uh, until uh, I call again or they call me back. Uh, but with, with my dad, that was never the case. Uh, again, regardless of what he was doing, he would always uh, answer. And even when he answered, uh, regardless if he was busy or doing something, um, he was never, there was never any aggravation in his tone. There was never any, um, I could never tell that he was upset or frustrated that I was calling him. You know, he was always so excited, whether I'd be in trouble or, you know, if that was the case, he would be nervous, making sure that I would be okay. Well, there was this one uh, particular memory that I have, and it was when I first started driving. I was going uh, to a Bible college that had what they called welcome days. And if any of you are familiar with uh, the term welcome days, some colleges may use uh, different terms for that. But anyways, um, it's basically just experiencing life on campus for a few days. So you get to if you get to enroll in that, you get to go to campus for a few days. You're probably going to be staying in the dorm with a few of the students that are already there. And you just kind of get to walk through campus. You get to sit in on some classes. And um, at this particular uh, college, they had a, a set time of day every day of the week uh, where they would gather uh, for worship the entire school. Well, anyways, as I said, this was a time in my life where I had just started driving, and when I say just started driving, I mean it wasn't but a few weeks by myself. Um, this college was located in Gallatin, Tennessee, and I had never, uh, I, I was not too familiar at the time with Tennessee because I myself had not uh, driven there much, and uh, this particular part of Tennessee, I had not been there uh, very much, even with parents or friends or, or whoever. And uh, I also want to say that I, I had an iPhone 6 at the time, and I'll explain why, that, why that's important in a second. Um, so I am leaving school one day, this is on a, a Friday evening, and uh, I'm getting ready to drive down. And as I'm getting ready to drive down, I plug in my GPS on my phone, uh, the uh, coordinates or the address of the school, if you will. Uh, what I didn't know at the time was that a particular update had come out uh, on the iPhone 6. And this, it's, it's weird how this was the case, but it was only with the iPhone 6 that this was happening. Uh, come to find out, I, I learned of many others that were having this issue. Um, but I don't know about you guys, but I always keep my phone updated. Uh, it bugs me if I don't have it updated. Uh, I, it just does. 
So always keep it updated. Uh, I set the option to where if I'm sleeping at night, it'll update overnight. Well, anyways, I'm driving and I'm not taking the interstate. It doesn't have me taking the interstate. It has me taking a different route. And uh, I just noticed that it's not recalculating. It's not uh, showing me where I'm actually at. And uh, my first thought is, okay, I'm looking at my signals. I have one bar signal. Okay, maybe it uh, just hasn't refreshed. Maybe that's my issue. And uh, so I keep driving. And eventually, I just get to the point to where I'm thinking, there's, I have no idea where I'm at. My phone's not telling me where I'm at. It's, it's got me moving, but it doesn't show me where I'm at, what road I'm on, all this. And anyways, this, this goes on for several minutes. And so I get, I get kind of frustrated, and, and I call my dad, and he's at work. And uh, again, when I called, there was no aggravation in his voice whatsoever. I just said, Dad, I, I'm in trouble, and I kind of need your help. And he's, you know, at first, he's a little nervous. He's thinking, am I hurt or anything? And I try to calm him down by saying, no, I'm not. I'm fine. I'm just lost. <laughs> well, anyways, he doesn't have an iPhone 6. Uh, he has one of the, uh, the newer versions of the 6. I think he had like the 6S or something like that. Well, those phones weren't having this issue. And uh, I told him, uh, I said, Dad, I am lost. My phone is not showing me where I'm at. I don't even think my GPS is working. He said, well, are you sure? Do you have signal? I said, well, now I'm in a place where I, you know, I have three, four bars, and I, it's just not refreshing for me. Well, he says, all right, well, where are you at? And I said, Dad, I have no idea. So uh, I drive for a little bit longer and try to get a bearing of where I'm at, and he's on his phone. He steps away from work for a minute, and he's on his phone, and he's trying to figure out where I'm at. And eventually I get to, like, a main road where I'm able to tell him, all right, I'm at this main road, Dad. And he's like, okay, son. I know where you're at. You have gone a little bit too far south than what you should have. Uh, so I had to make a U-turn and immediately turn back, and I had to drive for several miles back uh, before I had to make a right turn, which should have been a left turn on the way down. Uh, anyways, I, um, as that was happening, my dad was on the phone with me the whole time uh, until I got to where I was, and, and he was gracious enough uh, to do that. Uh, I, I say all of that uh, to use illustrations like Clark does, and he's so good at them. Uh, I say all of that to say we've kind of come to one of those passages in Numbers where a U-turn has kind of been made. Uh, and that's where we find ourselves here uh, in chapter 24. Um, now, with this oracle, it's a little bit different uh, from the uh, previous oracles that uh, that we have looked at uh, together. And uh, in chapters uh, 22 and 23, uh, unlike uh, our passage here in chapter 24, Balaam uh, does not depart uh, from Balak uh, and the altars uh, to a place of solitude like he does in the other oracles. He does not uh, do any rituals to prepare for an, an encounter with the divine here. Uh, he doesn't receive uh, any revelation in the manner of the Lord putting words uh, in his mouth even. Uh, no, that is not what happens here. Uh, look at verses 1 through 2 with me again. It says, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And, and Balaam lifted up his eyes and, and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. 
Now that is uh, a crucial part in this passage uh, because like I said, unlike uh, the other oracles that are going on, that does not happen uh, in those. It only happens here uh, in chapter 24. And so the Spirit of God has come upon him. Now, this act of the Spirit of God uh, coming upon him, uh, the precise nature, uh, if you will, of that to most biblical scholars is, is, is unclear. And I, I think if, as you're reading the passage, it's, it's kind of unclear as well. Uh, you know, we just get this phrase that the Spirit of God had come upon him. Uh, now, there is some uh, that interpret uh, this phrase that Balaam has uttered, uh, that he is indicating that he has entered into some kind of uh, ecstatic state, uh, if you will, um, kind of similarly to like what we see uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, for example, right, where there uh, what you have going on is the anointing of Saul the king, of Saul as king in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And in verse 6 of that passage, it reads, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into uh, another man. And so some uh, biblical scholars will say that uh, in the same manner uh, that uh, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon uh, Saul in in 1 Samuel, that it's the same manner as well uh, here, with Balaam in Numbers 24. Uh, But regardless uh, if that is um, actually the case, again, we don't know the very nature. Um, The point here is that Balaam is looking down. He's looking down on the camps of Israel. And there's one thing that is clear, that God has moved His Spirit upon Balaam. God has given Balaam divine insight here. Now that is very clear. That is very clear. Because this is the Spirit of God came upon him. Now as we get into this oracle together, uh, this third oracle uh, in some ways expands on the first and second oracles that we uh, see, that we have looked at earlier. Uh, And the central themes of, of really the first two oracles uh, just to, to give you a reminder of what was going on there, was the, the divine blessing upon Israel, uh, that their enemies couldn't touch them. That was uh, really the central theme of, of, of both of those uh, oracles. But here in this third oracle, uh, the focus now becomes more on Israel's future, more on Israel's future as they prepare to enter into the promised land that God had promised them. Something I want to note here before we get dive into this oracle, and I, th- I think it's quite extraordinary of what we see here, is we see God's sovereignty demonstrated in the very beginning of this passage uh, in a very unique way. Uh, and I think it's always of great benefit to us, and to me especially, uh, that when we get these snippets and when we get these glimpses of God's sovereignty in Scripture, I think it's important uh, that I especially zoom in on these. Because I think it's so easy to forget in the craziness of life and the chaos of life. Um, you know, we say, or I say, and I believe, and I truly do, that God is sovereign over all things. But uh, sometimes I need to be reminded of that. And uh, I, hope, uh, I hope this snippet, this reminder, uh, will be good for you uh, as well. But look at verse 1 with me again, where it says, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord 
to bless Israel. What, so what did Balaam see? When Balaam saw what? That it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. Is that not an extraordinary way of God manifesting His sovereignty here? I mean, think about it. Here you have this pagan seer, this pagan seer that is hired to curse the people of God, that is hired to curse the people of God. And really what happens here is he gets to see this ultimate vision, uh, if you will. He gets to see the conclusion in which God has in store for his people. And he sees by the sovereign hand of an all-powerful, almighty, majestic God that God has blessed his people and there's nothing that he or anyone can do about it against that blessing. A tremendous display, just in this little snippet of this passage, a tremendous display of the sovereignty of God. And oftentimes I think we can look at those things and just overlook them. You know, we don't, we don't see uh, these things sometimes. So that's why I think it's good for us to zoom in uh, on these snippets, if you will. All right, well, let's, uh, let's begin to look at this uh, oracle together, uh, beginning in verses 3 through 4. He says, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uh, uncovered. Now, Again, something else to, to just keep uh, as a reminder of the difference between this oracle and the previous oracles of Balaam uh, is, is uh, now is the focus has shifted. So in the, uh, in the first two oracles, they began with references to Balak, again, the king of Moab. And here in this third oracle, it begins with a description of, of Balaam and, and really his purpose in, his, in this whole thing. Um, again, this oracle is about the future Israel as we're, they're getting close now to completing the Exodus and they're getting ready to enter and conquer the promised land, which ultimately we know is, uh, fulfills the promise that God made uh, to Abraham. And so we see at the very beginning of this oracle that after the Spirit of God had come upon him through this sovereign act of God, we see the Spirit of God working on the mind of the heart and the mouth of Balaam here, okay? So a tremendous act of sovereignty is, is, is taking place uh, here at the beginning of this oracle. God has, has brought His Spirit upon Balaam. He has opened his eyes to see God's plan for His people, and that is how this oracle begins. Now as we move on uh, into verses 5 through 7, uh, there's a lot of imagery here, uh, and I want to try to I want to try to break some of this down. We, we won't be get, able to get uh, into everything, but I, I hope that the bits and pieces that we do get into tonight, I hope it will help us uh, to understand this oracle a little bit better, and hopefully understand our God a little bit better, and, and as we gaze upon Him in this passage. Uh, so again, in uh, verses five through seven. Let's just read those together. Again, it says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river. 
like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees that beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than a god, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Uh, verse 5, uh, the beginning of those verses that we just read, um, is simply just really stating there that they're tents, uh, which symbolizes here the dwelling places uh, of the people of Israel in the land, uh, in the promised land, will be good uh, and suitable for them, right? Just as God had promised uh, it would be. Now in verses uh, 6 and the beginning of, of verse 7, uh, we, we see some statements uh, that are made here. And uh, in verse 6 specifically, we uh, see statements that consist of four agricultural uh, statements preceded by the word like. So again, verse 6, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, and like cedar trees beside the waters. Uh, I like the way that that one commentator puts uh, this verse uh, in, in describing uh, verse 6 in these uh, agricultural statements. He says, A historical work of art that was brought about to flower in its full glory uh, in the promised land. There's not really a whole lot I'm going to flesh out here. Um, but really this verse is, is dealing uh, with analogies that, that speak of luxury and abundance uh, and speak to the great growth uh, of Israel uh, in its dwelling place uh, in the promised land of Canaan. So Israel is going to have a life source that brings about a great abundance to it in its future. So a good point I think to make here is, is the population of Israel is going to be nourished and it's going to be nurtured by the blessing of God, the life source, by the blessing of God. Okay, so there's going to be, there's going to be luxury, there's going to be abundance. And ultimately, we know that that is all going to be brought about by God himself because God has chosen to bless his people. Now look at uh, verse 7 with me again. It says, Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. I just want to focus on the latter part of verse 7 for a moment. It says, and his king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Uh, now, there are texts specifically uh, in the book of Genesis speaking of the coming kingship. This coming kingship that would come from the lineage of Abraham, which would come and rule over the land belonging to the Canaanites, but promised to the future generations of Jacob, Right? We see that in Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 through 8, where God says, 
and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come for you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And so this, this king, this king would one day be anointed and lead Israel in his glory, would be superior to the great king of God. Now, there are a few different views, according to some biblical scholars here, on the name of God. And I just want to name, uh, I just want to give you those four different views. Now, I haven't, uh, I haven't looked into these views much in, in, in what um, and what I might think is, is more accurate. I, I have an idea uh, of myself, and this is something you can look into as well if you want to uh, get a little bit more of an accurate picture uh, of, of this single word. But the name Agag here, the first view uh, about this is that in the Septuagint, in the Samaritan Pentateuch, the text says greater than God. That's the phrase there. And that is a reference uh, to a region of northeastern Asia Minor. So that's the first view of this word. The second view, in summary, uh, there's, a long there's a long description with the second view. Uh, in summary, uh, Agog supports the theory that the texts as we know them were composed many centuries after uh, the purported historical events recorded or recounted and reflect the political and historical issues in the later periods of Israel's divided monarchies. So that's the second view. The third view suggests that this is the prediction that Israel will defeat uh, its earliest arch rival, the Amalekites. Uh, this comes from a reference uh, to the Amalekites in Balaam's final oracle, which we won't read uh, tonight. And then there's a fourth view, a fourth argument, which I personally tend to lean more towards too as uh, I study this a little bit. And that is that it is more likely the conclusion uh, that the word Agag here was a dynastic name among the Amalekites, uh, one of the early foes that we find uh, of Israel in Exodus chapter uh, 17, uh, whose downfall is later predicted uh, in chapter 24, uh, verse 20. Now that is the the view that I tend to lean towards more, uh, and I'm sure if I studied that a little bit more, I would either be corrected or uh, stay with that view. Uh, but either way, regardless of which view you tend to fall, and I hope you study that and try to find the more biblical uh, view, and I, again, I tend to think that that's the fourth argument there, um, a kingship has been promised. 
and it will be greater than that of the kingdom of God. So it's going to be greater, okay? A kingship has been promised, and it's going to be greater, all right? Now look at verse 8 with me. It says that God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. What set Israel apart? Was it their number of, of their huge population that set them apart? Uh, was it their power? Uh, was it their perseverance uh, in the wilderness for over a course of 40 years? The answer to that is no. What set them apart is their God, Yahweh. God was their invincible king. He was their warrior. He was their provider. And he demonstrated all throughout the wilderness his power by delivering his people from the bondage of one of the most powerful empires in the world at the time. And so this, this verse compares the power of God to the horns of wild ox. Now, I don't have experience with wild ox, but I did grow up on a dairy farm. We did have some beef cattle, and we did have some Angus bulls, all right? And I don't know if you're too familiar with Angus bulls and, and dehorning them, um, and the way I would describe it is you're taking a almost what you would call, oh my goodness, a, um, an electric sandpaper machine, basically. And it's like that, but it's, it's a hundred times more powerful. And when you're dehorning these bulls, and you've you got to lock them suckers up because this is not... Uh, this is, I mean, it's pretty painful uh, from the movement I, I seem to make and, and even uh, what my uncle and my grandmother and great-grandmother would tell me. Uh, well, anyways, you're, you're jarring this into their horn just constantly over and over, and it's just, it's so powerful, right? So these horns of a bull are powerful, and I'm sure if you got hit with one, it would, it would do some serious damage and probably fatally kill you. Um, so that, you know, again, I don't have personal experience with wild ox, but this is comparing God's power to the horns of wild ox, but imagine that, but like infinitely greater. God is infinitely more powerful than that. Right? He's their warrior king. He's their provider. He's the one who's had the power this whole time to deliver them and to keep them. Continuing on in verse 8. It says, He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Again, Israel's strength came solely from the God who delivered them from bondage. 
Chapter 22, verse 12 of Numbers says, the Lord says, you must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. I think the ending of verse 8 leads really well into verse 9. The destructive power of the Lord. Look at what verse 9 says. He crouched. I want you to notice how this description is laid out. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. And then there's a question that's raised. Who will rouse him up? Who will rouse him up? God is being compared here to a lion. If any of you all here watch documentaries and have seen documentaries on lions, they are some pretty powerful creatures. And they can take down animals three times their size easily. Right? So there's imagery here. There's imagery here of raw power, of forcefulness, and brute strength of a lion that is compared to the power of God here. And so in this context, the lion is depicted in a calm kind of way. In a calm kind of way. In a calm kind of posture. But if it's aroused or if it's provoked, it can easily change from being calm to being ferociously and terrifyingly demonstrating its brute strength. And, it, and guys, it's the same with the Lord. It's the same with the Lord. It's a, there's a warning. Nations beware, right? Lest you should provoke the Lord to anger by trying to destroy the divinely chosen Israel. Beware, nations. He lay down like a lion, like a lioness, and who will rouse him up? Who dares to provoke the Lord? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. So what's been the reoccurrent theme over the last several chapters? God has and God will continue to bless His people. Another commentator writes this. He says, God's blessing is so powerful and irrevocable that even the most renowned divination expert of the day could not counter its effectiveness. Only God could resign his blessing upon Israel and he would not because such an act would defile his inviolable, his inviolable character. We get a glimpse of the sovereignty of God. We get a glimpse that even 
when people come and challenge. God is the one in control. God is the one who poured His Spirit upon Balaam. And God is the one who spoke through Balaam. A man who was hired to curse his people. I'm reminded of the passage in Isaiah when the, uh, the, the fear of the Assyrians is upon them. And they get all their wise men, they get all their wise counselors, and they try to come up with strategies, right, to protect themselves from the Assyrians. What does God do? He sends one angel and slays them all. Just when we think that God isn't in control, that's when He's the most in control. Amen? Let us not forget that. Let us not forget the sovereignty of God even when things seem to be out of control. Even when those that even when there's those that come and try to challenge the people of God, try to destroy them, try to curse them. God is faithful to his promises, not because of anything within us, but because he is a faithful God. And he will keep those promises that he's made to his people. And for those of us that are in Christ, those promises are yes and amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the constant reminder that, that we need of your sovereignty, of your might, of your power. And we thank you that you allowed us to see that in this passage. Father, may we never forget that. May we never forget that truth. May we continually have that truth in the back of our minds that even when our life is chaotic, when things seem to be crumbling around all around us, Lord, would you comfort us with that peace of knowing that you are in control of all things and that you work all things for the good of those that love you, of those whom you've predestined before the foundation of the world. We thank you for Christ, and it's in his name.